Welcome to the Failed Orbit Records Podcast. This is episode 3, and it's focused on the old school. Check it out.
that was a band called My Ex Is Dead with the song Carnival. Before that, we had the band Sorry with the song Blue Donut. Fun fact, both of those bands had a couple of the same members. Look at that crossover. And kicking off the show was Shia with a song called Cookies with Saddam. They had fun back then, and we're having fun now. Let's keep this fucking train rolling. <laughs>
All right, that was a song called The Mokes Are Coming by a band. Uh, I believe the band was called Something Really Offensive. That was their name. And the first time I heard that song was at Pink Cadillac when I was like in high school or something. Mr. Meaner had played it. And uh, I'm trying to verify with Warren that that is the actual name of the band who wrote the song. Before that was a band called Devil Dogs with a song called uh, Rockin' Lizard Man. And that song came out in like the 80s. I think that release, the album release was like 86. And uh, there's shit from Hawaii punk going all the way back to the 70s. I'm barely scratching the surface. But, you know, when I find it, I'm going to share it. Which leads me to this week's guest, or today's guest, this guest, Kevin Jones, who played in A Young Poisoner's Handbook and The Catalog. He's been around in the Hawaii punk scene like since the 80s. He also hosts an interview series called Punk on a Rock, where he talks story with some old school heads from the punk scene, and uh, they dive into things that I have no idea, you know, things I know nothing about. So, you know, check that shit out. But first, I'm going to play a song from the catalog called Another Girl. It was a very popular song. Um, the queers covered it, and uh, we talk a little bit about that. So uh, buckle up, buckaroos. Fuck. What's up, Kevin? Hey, man. How's it going? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. So let's just jump right into it. Did you grow up in Hawaii? Like you born um, and raised? Or how did you end up? Uh, yeah, I was actually born in Hawaii. Or I was born in Tennessee, where I am now, in Knoxville. Um, my dad was the captain of the Navy golf team. And so when I was in third grade, uh, we got stationed in Honolulu, or he got stationed in Honolulu. Um, because that's where they were based. Where and were you? Because, did you grow up in Pearl Harbor, like Hickam area? I was in I was in Pearl City. Okay. Um, yeah, near the peninsula. I went to uh, Lehua Elementary, uh, Highlands Intermediate, and Pearl City High School. Okay. Yeah. But uh, because he was the captain of the Navy golf team, and they were based out of there, um, 
we were able to stay there um, while I was, you know, up until I was in college. So um, I was there from probably 85 through 94. And then I moved away and came back a few times and finally ended up um, out on the mainland for good. Right on. Okay. So what, what was the scene like, or like, how did you get involved in the local <laughs> music scene? Well, so I, I grew up collecting music. Um, I, grew, I grew up collecting records, um, especially once I got to Hawaii because, and I, and I was super young when I, when I got into music. I had two older stepsisters who were like metalheads and uh, they were much older than me. Like one of them dated one of the dudes from Death Angel, it's crazy. Um, so like, um, they turned me on to music like when I was way young, like you know, second and third grade. And so I started buying records as young as that. Um, when I got to Hawaii, um, there was a record store right on the corner of Cam Highway and Lehua Avenue. So like I could walk there. Um, so anytime I had money, like I would just buy like, you know, records. And at some point, you know, I met a few kids that used to skate in my neighborhood who turned me on to things like the Descendants and Ramones and stuff like that. Um, and I started buying punk records. Um, do you remember about yeah. what year that was? God, uh, it had to have been like 87-ish. Okay. 87, 88. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I started playing music. I picked up the bass, started learning, teaching myself. Um, played in really bad metal cover bands in high school. Um, finally, you know, I met some of the... Uh, local punk kids in town through a girl that transferred to my school named Beanie. Um, and she was dating a guy named Marty Lau and they all lived uh, out towards UH. And so they invited me to come out and uh, go to shows with them. And that's sort of how I got started going to local shows. So, okay. So what were the bands that were like playing when you started going to shows? When I started going, it was kind of right at the end of, uh, the No Place to Play compilation, which was like all of the 70s and 80s punk bands. Like all those bands had kind of gone away at that point. So when I started going, it was bands like Broken Man, BYK, Tarask, SRO, um, Luau Guys, stuff like that. So in, is it Broken Man? Is, in my head, Broken Man is like one of the earliest Hawaii punk bands. But I joined way, got in way later. So I'm yeah. wondering like, what, who, is there any band that is like accredited to being like the, one of the first Hawaii punk bands? Yeah, I, I would say, and, and it's funny because I'm going to interview him on my little um, video talk show next week. Um, there was a guy named Raul who was in a band called Devil Dog and they were around like right during the mid, the late 70s period, like 77, 78, um, and they're amazing. Um, like for being from Hawaii and like so separated from anything that was going on in New York or the UK, like they nailed it. Like just straight ahead, like junky powered punk rock. <laughs> like, Hell yeah. just like, you know, like that total like New York sound, like they, they were awesome. So. I would say they were probably the oldest. Uh, Sorry, what the was that band name? Uh, Devil Dog. Devil Dog, okay. 
Yeah. And I would say the most accredited band from Hawaii from back then was Cringer, who ended up yeah, living Lance in the Bay Area. Yeah, and all that. So, yeah. Okay. Damn. But that was, like, right before I started going to shows. Like, by the time I started going, like, all those bands had left. Ah, okay. And that was about the mid-late 80s. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy to even think about. <laughs> going yeah. on out there it's it's crazy to think how old i am like i mean and well i guess just how long i've been into music like it's kind of ridiculous like i don't know any kids that are like you know 10 and 11 like getting into punk rock like but then i don't know very many 10 or 11 year olds either so <laughs> <laughs> broken man byk bands like that were playing when you had just started going to shows yeah um how long before you found a band of your own that wasn't like a cover band. That was like what yeah. you would consider your first band. Well, I mean, it, it took me moving away to San Diego for two years during high school um, and coming back to really get anything started. So I moved away during 10th grade for two years and came back. And I guess it was, I came back in 93, 94, 93. And um, met Les Hernandez for the first time. Um, I had known the other members of the catalogs uh, previous, Justin and Pat Murphy, who was the original singer, and Amos, who was the original drummer. Um, and just out of chatting, we just decided to start a pop punk band. Like, we were all kind of at that point, we had heard, you know, Screeching Weasel, The Queers, and things like that. Um, and that's kind of the sound we were going for. but. We were also, I mean, all of us were into like the older like 70s and 80s punk too. So it was kind of trying to find like the balance of like more of a Ramones core type band and not too much directly aping on Screeching Weasel or something like that. We kind of wanted to find a balance and I, I think we sort of did that. But. Oh yeah, you guys hit that on the head. Yeah. <laughs> and it helps to have less because he was way into like all the horror stuff. So that kind of gave us like a distinct uh sound or like you know content anyway for like those songs yeah because me growing up i didn't because i also like came in uh a real big fan of like the old look at like the weasel mpx mm. queers and when i first met les I was, he introduced me to the fact that you can be in the real poppy shit but it can also be very evil yeah, because yeah, I was sure. just so used to uh, girls and, you know, <laughs> I'm mad at my parents, but it's like, yeah, but we can sing about the devil, too. <laughs> yeah, like, why not? <laughs> so, yeah, catalogs yeah. were my intro into just, like, how that sound doesn't have to be specifically those certain topics. You can talk about whatever you want. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a cool band to be in, and I think, you know, it took us, it took us a good, like, year and a half to, like, settle on a final lineup, like decide who was going to sing, like, you know, write the songs that became like the first demo um, and, and then finally record it and start playing shows properly. Um, we practiced constantly, like for a good year solid before we even played a show. Um, and even when we did, we played like such a low key show that nobody would really be there. <laughs> like <laughs> we wouldn't have to worry about it too much. Yeah, it was actually at UH. It was a benefit for, um, the Kobe Earthquake Relief Victims, or it was like, yeah, the Kobe Earthquake Victims Relief Fund, 
Yeah, that's what it was. And it was like outside of UH. So like, we didn't tell any of our friends, like we were doing it, we just sort of did it. <laughs> and so like, we played to like random like UH students, you know, and I think that was like probably in 94. And how'd that go? Was it like the... It was scary, um, <laughs> you know, like it was our first like real show and um, in front of an entire university. Um, yeah, Were you I guys mean, like hooked after that? Like you gotta do this again? Yeah, well, I think we saw, we figured out what we needed to work on and then we worked on it, you know? Okay. And, and then I think the second show we played was at a place called Coffee Line, which was, um, it was next to the Burger King across from KTUH's studio. Um, and I, I couldn't tell you what street that is. Um, but it, it ended up being like, Oh, YWCA or something like that. Yeah. That was 94, you were saying? 94-ish, yeah. Probably mid-94 something. And this was the catalog. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that area's probably changed a whole bunch yeah, since then. Yeah, a whole bunch. Even, even probably in the last 10 years, it's probably changed two or three times. Um, I, I haven't been, I haven't lived there since 2004, I think. Um, so it's been a while for me too. Um, yeah, I, I think the place was called Coffee Line at the time. It used to be a YWCA or something. And it was a benefit show for Mari, who was doing the um, free Mumia um, benefits back then. Mari used to work for Golden Voice. Eventually, she was like a big deal um, as far as promoting goes in Hawaii. Yeah, I remember when I was coming in, Golden Voice was who brought all the big bands down to yeah. the pipeline and Blazer and stuff. But yeah. um, okay, so Coffee Line. I didn't realize there was another coffee venue. <laughs> yeah. I came into Coffee Talk, the people before me were uh, uh, Coffee Factory. And yeah. I guess there was a whole Coffee Line. <laughs> I think it was like right when cafes sort of became a thing too. Like there wasn't really like very many coffee shops. Yeah, so where were the shows typically at, like during the early night? Um, yeah, uh, there were no shows. Um, so the back door was sort of the main venue back then. Um, there was another venue called C5, um, which had many iterations over the years. Um, but really, those two places were the only places to play, and both of them had shut down prior to the catalogs happening. Um, so when I was going to shows earlier on as a kid, like it was usually at the back door because it was all ages. Um, and yeah, while I was away in San Diego, they had shut down. And um, by the time I got back, there were there was really no place to play. In fact, there weren't very many local bands at the time. I think when the catalog started, Power Pellets probably were just starting. And uh, Grapefruit were probably just starting. Um, I remember playing with Power Pellets once really early on, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, it, you had, like, some of the older bands were still around, BYK was still around, um, MUG was still around, uh, Luau guys were kind of still around, they would play every once in a while, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, there, there were no venues and there were no shows. Damn. So, yeah. okay, then when did you notice it all starting to come back a little bit? Well, what changed was somehow, and, and I've been trying to remember exactly how this happened, but um, Les and I got hooked up with the Fast Zone 
um, before they started doing shows there and we started booking shows there. So the two of us uh, started booking local shows at first with the intention of raising money to bring out uh, mainland bands. Um, and Fasten quickly became the epicenter of punk rock in Hawaii for a good four year stint. I mean, like uh, we did a lot of the shows there and then eventually other promoters came in and would do shows. Jason Miller would do shows there um, and a few other people. But yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of like the big place to play during the catalogs period. So I, what like inspired, like how did you guys raise the money? Like what inspired the thought process of booking the show? Well, they, they, the they offered the venue to us to, to promote shows. Um, what we would do is pay out the bands uh, the local bands from the benefit shows that we would do and save a portion of it to bring out um, mainland groups. Um, so we would try to save up enough to cover either at least half of the airfare or like some sort of hospitality, whether it be a hotel room or something. Um, and they would generally pay the rest, whatever they, a lot of times it was bands that were on their way to Japan or, um, you know, somewhere else, Australia to begin with and just had a layover and was able to book a layover in Hawaii to play a show. Uh, the first band we brought out was The Queers. Um, and then they ended up covering a catalog song. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, and then, yeah, we brought out groups like Mr. T Experience. Jeez, uh, I wrote down a whole list of people. The Quincy Punks, um, Scared of Chaka, uh, a lot of stuff. The All those bands, Danny yeah. really fucking love. And yeah. I always remember <laughs> hearing too. that they would come, that they came once. And I'm like, one of those, like, man, I was born at the wrong time, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, but. um yeah. The queer show was was the first one, and it it was a lot of fun. Those guys are great. I see Joe like every now and again because he lives in uh, Atlanta, uh, not too far from me, and we're running to each other you know whenever he plays up here or i ran into him randomly at some festival last year and just chatted it was right after les had passed away and i'd gotten back from his memorial um so we talked a lot about that but yeah i mean he still keeps in touch it's crazy like you know that's been what close to 20 some odd years ago and yeah i mean you know he's he's he always kept in touch with less more than any of us because he had to pay royalties to less, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, like he he was always a down to earth guy, and whenever he came, he always had a good chat. Um, but yeah, I mean, getting back to the fast one, I guess, I it, yeah, it it was really the only place to play for for a good long period of time, and a lot of local bands kind of started there. Okay. And you said that lasted for about four years before it shut down or four years, then you guys kind of handed it off to other people. Well, I think I, I moved away again at some point. <laughs> and during that time, either it shut down, the venue owners didn't want to do shows again. I don't remember the specifics, but there weren't shows there anymore. Um, and then by the time I came back again, uh, men had opened another version of C5 right around the corner from where Fastlane was. and. I think that's right. No, that's not right. She opened She opened out somewhere near um, Sand Island. And that's where all the shows would happen um, at that point. 
for the most part. They're, and then people started doing house shows and stuff, which was pretty unusual from Hawaii for Hawaii. Um, back in the early days, there weren't house shows at all. Yeah. Um, but during that period, those, those started to pop up as well. I heard of a, I don't know if you know these guys, but uh, Mindless Rebellion had like a, a house, like some sort of punk house near like the Manoa area. I want to say it's maybe it's Elon I'm not too sure what the school was mm -hmm. but it was like right next to the freeway I had never been there I just had friends who whenever we drive by they'd be like oh that's old mindless rebellion house huh but I don't yeah. know what time period that was it doesn't sound familiar to me I think at the time um after I'd moved back again um I had started a couple other bands um and we were playing shows a lot on the north shore actually um, there was a, uh, I want to say it's a shed. Um, it, it probably had some sort of purpose, but it was a shed on somebody's property. Um, and they would do a lot of shows there. Um, <clears throat> when I was playing with Cooperstown, um, I remember playing there at least two or three times. Um, and then uh, Noe from Sorry uh, and her sister Epo would have shows on their parents' farm um every once in a while and then they started doing like an annual uh punk prom thing where everybody would play covers and it was a lot of fun yeah that sounds cool as hell <laughs> so what about what year how long did the catalogs last was did you like when you left was that the end of the band right no no um i left to move to new york with my then girlfriend um and they all moved right around the same time to the Seattle area and um, less than moved to Portland. They got another guy, uh, Frank Gertler, who used to do um, a fanzine, I can't remember the name of. Um, and I believe one of the Power Pellets kids uh, on base, or it may have been the other way around. Anyway, so they were all in the Portland, Seattle areas. Uh, that's when the seven inch got recorded, um, and it was that lineup that did it. So, and then shortly after the the seven inch was recorded, they broke up, and then the seven inch didn't even come out for another ten years. So, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. And it happens too often. Yeah. Did you guys ever tour or play outside of Hawaii? No, unfortunately, um, we had so many chances to do it too. It it just never happened, um, especially with the queers contact. Like, I don't know. I, during that time period, nobody really thought about touring until like Grapefruit did it and and the Sticklers did it. Like, you know, nobody nobody really thought we were going to get anywhere outside of Hawaii. We just sort of like, oh, this is what we're going to do. We were hopefully maybe record a record, and that was kind of like the best we could hope for. Um, and then uh, yeah, like. The Staplers started touring, and then Grapefruit did a tour, and then National Product toured and got huge. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, we didn't we didn't really think about it, and then of course I moved away, and they all moved, and I think I think the band maybe played shows in the Pacific Northwest before breaking up, but again, it was kind of after I was involved. Yeah. yeah. So that, but that that was like around the big boom of like punk time, like mid 90s right. yeah mid to late um because i i think i came back probably it was after 9 11. yeah i think it was the year after 9 11 that i came back i might be wrong that sounds right um 
and then yeah started playing with uh the folks in cooperstown which was members of hell yeah bowlers members of um another crisis and started getting more into hardcore stuff um and moving away from the pop punk stuff okay um, was there was the scene still like a, a melting pot of shows where there's like a pop punk band and a hardcore band in the same bill kind of thing yeah but it, it definitely changed um i want to say there were a lot of women fronted bands like when i came back which was fantastic um you had bands like Sorry um, and Epo's band, which I can't remember the name other than she'll kill me for it. Um, and a few others. Um, there was a, a girl named Christine Gibbons who also was in a band. Um, yeah, and, and then, you know, the, the whole emo thing started happening. So you had a lot of bands doing more like Sensitive Rock. <laughs> um, and, and, and then the hardcore scene was huge again too. And, and it was very straight edge driven, but um, you know, mostly the Kailua kids were like all straight edge kids and they started forming bands and started playing shows in town. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a mix, but there, there wasn't too much like straight ahead, like punk rock going on. There was a lot of like, yeah, hardcore and a lot of like more artsy stuff happening, which was cool during that period. And question, you sent me like a Dropbox full of like old bands and, yeah. uh, I heard, uh, the Mokes. Uh-huh. Like the Mokes are come, and I first heard that song because Mr. Meaner would play it all the time. Right. And I know they're one of like the older bands. Yeah, but yeah. Who wrote that original song? Jeez, I don't even know. Because <laughs> I only heard I them play it, but I'm pretty sure they were covering it from someone else. Was was the original in the Dropbox that they sent you? I think so, because it didn't sound like Warren or Mr. Meaner doing it. Yeah. I don't know. I'll have to look again because I just dropped all that stuff in there and I probably haven't listened to it since 2000 or something. Um, but yeah, man, like I, I, I don't know. But I know the song that you're talking about because I do remember Mr. Meaner playing it as well. Um, I'll have to think about it. We'll, we'll, we'll double back on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, yeah, I moved back and the scene was a little bit artier. Unwound came and played in Hawaii, which was cool. Um, and uh, I ended up starting a band called A Young Poisoner's Handbook with a guy named Neil and another guy named Ken on drums. Uh, Ken was from Japan. Neil Holmquist used to be in a few bands with Just Sanner. Um, so I don't know if you know these people or if anybody knows these people, but uh, they were all like 2000s, late 90s, 2000s scene people. Um, and uh, we ended up adding another guy on bass because originally I was playing bass and singing. And then uh, we got another guy named Jeremy to play bass. And then we added Michael Marcosone from a few other 90s bands um, on guitar and started playing as a young poisoner's handbook. And where were you guys playing at? Like, what were the venues? That was, you said early 2000s? It, it was, yeah. Um, it was mostly C5 at the time, the, the one on um, near the airport or Sand Island. Um, random places. Again, a lot of house shows, a lot of times at Millie's house. There was a place called King's Crab that we used to play a lot of shows at too. It was, um, it was in Waikiki. Um, okay. I think I heard about that spot. That's yeah, sushi, that, sushi that was it was yeah it was a weird like chinese like seafood restaurant <laughs> um but it was 
it was a really cool venue. It was actually probably one of my favorite venues to play because it was so small and it would just get packed and hot and like fun, you know? Yeah. And nobody was like going nuts and like moshing. It was it was like during that RT sort of like, we're gonna just stand and nod our heads, period. <laughs> uh, punk rock. Um but yeah, I playing those shows with with those bands like Sorry and um yeah, I mean it was it was a lot of fun during that period. Oh yeah. So when did you leave Hawaii for the was it the last time after that? Yeah, yeah, that would have been the last time. So I don't know the year. I, I would guess two thousand six maybe. Two thousand five. Two thousand five I moved to Minneapolis for a few years and then I ended up in Seattle. Um and then Chicago and then here. <laughs> okay. Um just sort of bounced around. Um I work as a graphic designer, so um, yeah, I'm sort of able to move around uh, when I can. And since moving here, I've had a child, so I'm not really moving anywhere for a while. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So what were the venues, or like, what were the bands and venues playing or coming up right before you left? Um, actually, they they started doing. It's I think that's when uh, Jason Miller started promoting shows full time. Um, because he was doing a lot of shows at what used to be the Wave, maybe, or it was Pink's Garage or something. It used to be another venue, um, and it was right on the edge of Waikiki. The um, Pink Cadillac? Maybe. It was near the hideout. Yeah, bar. it was right in front. The hideout was yeah. right behind it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so we were playing a lot there, and I think Jason Miller was promoting shows there almost full time. A few other people were doing shows there as well. Um, that's where Young Poisoner Sampa played their last show for sure. Um, as far as I can recall, it was Bad and Sea Five was still going at the time. Yeah. Damn. Okay. And bands bands that were coming up around that time were like when uh, the Kailua kids sort of stopped uh, just being straight edge and wanted to do like other things. Uh, there was a band called Quarterhead um, yeah. with Jonah Ray, the comedian. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, and they were fantastic. Um, we played a lot of shows with them too, actually, during that that last year of a Young Poisoners Handbook. Um, and uh, Chuck had a really fun band called Society's Threat that was sort of like a a mock, like English '80s punk band, like sort of a fake GBH. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Damien from the Numbskulls also played in that band. Um, yeah, it was it was just a really fun time when people were just like trying things out and doing things like differently than they had in years previous. It was a lot more fun, a lot less serious. Yeah. Okay. I was just about to ask, like, was the vibe just a lot more goofy? Have fun. Goofy, artsy. Um, there was a lot of DIY stuff happening back then, like a lot of zines. Um, Oh, I should also mention 1739. That was sort of happening at the same time, too. Uh, that's another venue that was downtown somewhere. Yeah, I was um, right by uh, by that Don Quixote, which is now there, or the Hawaiian Brown. I think it's off Kalikawa or something. Yeah, something like that, right. Um, I remember um, Propagandi played a show there with um, J Church probably a year before I left. Um, and I had to make vegan chili for the show. It was the first time I ever made vegan chili, and I 
I'm pretty sure it was horrible. Um, <laughs> but they all politely ate it. Um, so, yeah. So well, that was cool. Because that was, that was the first time I got to meet Lanton, actually, um, and sort of talk to him about, like, you know, the scene in Hawaii in the 80s. So that was cool. Yeah, that was a trip. when I, The first time I uh, ever heard a Cringer song, I was like, oh, this song. It was on some comp. I think it might have been a Jason Miller comp. But it was a KTH recording of Cringer. And then later I found out, oh, that's the dude from J Church. I guess from Hawaii. What was the, and then like, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he was cool. Um, like he, he was happy to talk story with me. Um, and we, and I also like knew a bunch of people that he knew in the Bay Area. Um, some of the guys from Silk and, um, and Kamala from Kamala on the corner board. So we talked about mutual friends that we had on the West Coast as well. Yeah, and then he passed away not not too long after that, I guess. Was there anyone doing uh, like fundraisers to bring mainland bands down? As far as you know, before you and Les started doing that at Fastone? Not that I'm aware of. Um, in fact, I, I don't remember seeing too many mainland bands outside of Golden Voice Productions um, happening. Um, before we started doing it. Definitely not smaller, you know, independent bands. Um, I think that when Radio Free Hawaii started, they they either started promoting their own shows or it was in coordination with Golden Voice or something. I'm, I'm not really sure, but the majority of like the bigger bands that came to Hawaii were via Golden Voice, as far as I know. Um, we did get to help with the bikini kill show at the fast zone only because i believe the story is that they were on tour with no effects or somebody like that at the time and they got really upset with whoever the band was and i'm pretty sure it was no effect um and so they refused to play with them <laughs> the second show um and they were booked for two shows so they still wanted to play and we ended up helping mari uh book them at the fast zone so Bikini Kill and No Effects both played Hawaii, but at yeah. two separate places. Well, no, I think they, oh. so they were booked for two shows at like the After Dark or something like that together. Um, and Bikini Kill, after the first show, decided that they, they didn't want to play with them anymore. <laughs> and so Mari reached out to us to put them at the Fast Zone. Um, so it was just Bikini Kill at the Fast Zone and a few local bands. Um, it was a I'll, crazy show. Um, I'm curious, I, did No Effects still play their regular show just without Bikini Kill? Yeah, yeah. So uh, one night there was two different bands, two different venues. Right, right. That's. I've seen that happen. <laughs> well, it wasn't for that purpose, but I always, because one time it was like Ill Repute played, and I think MDC played the same night at two separate venues, and I didn't understand why. Yeah. Separate. Because why is like, why not put the two bands together? But I don't know. A situation like that, Wait, I guess, makes sense. That happened in Hawaii that both of those bands played? Yeah. Um, that's so crazy. Was, <laughs> right next to, uh, it was in Ward Shopping Center, some venue over there. And then MDC was playing at Anna Bananas. And so, like, right that's after. That's so the, weird. Yeah, why would they do that? Exactly. I couldn't figure <laughs> it out. But. I got like I can understand sets. if you were in like a real city, like a big city, you know, like but like it's yeah. like it was wow. right down the street. <laughs> like, made no crazy. sense. That's funny. Were you like hopping back and forth? 
No, as soon as the Ill Repute show finished, I uh, rushed over to Anna's and then got to tail into MGC. That's cool. <laughs> so, Grapefruit Sticklers, any other local bands, like, were those the bands that inspired other bands, do you think, to take a shot? Well, I, I, I honestly don't know because I left, right? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. All the, I think, uh, I don't know if 86 list happened after sticklers but i know they shared members for i think auto played in both bands yeah auto was both um and yeah i mean after i left i really have no idea what happened i know that um dave noodle started uh what were they called modern lovers something lovers temporary lovers temporary lovers yeah um and i heard some of that stuff and then todd um todd sent me a bunch of Hawaii stuff that was going on. Like he sent me like a whole mixtape of stuff um, that was going on in like the uh, 2010s, I guess. Um, uh, and a, a big, Todd B. Yes, um, okay, I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I always yeah. like, I don't want to fuck up his last name. So I'm yeah. gonna say Todd. Ben, Venezuela, ben, Yeah, like that's that. exactly how it's in my head. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, he he was always around, especially like during the the Young Poisoners uh, period, and even when bands on uh, like um, Another Crisis were around, um, he was going to those shows. He was always more about the hardcore stuff too. Um, and I, his band was amazing. He sent me um, like something that they had recorded, and I was just like, "Whoa, dude, that's you singing!" Like, <laughs> is that Macaw Valley Blasters? Yes. yes oh my god it was so good i was like yeah. whoa where did this come from you know like um was kai also in that band i i remember it just being him and miko okay maybe kai was in another band but i remember whatever band kai was in was also awesome and kai I don't know kai. yes so yes. he i met him when he was in temp love okay and i know he was also very much was and uh, more artsy, because Temple Love was like pretty much like a rock and rolly band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I was just like, that's a Dave Noodle thing, but Kai, I always felt like was into some more uh, artsy, like different shit than just straight up yeah. rock and roll. Um, yeah, I mean, after I left, a lot of things happened. I feel like the bands got a lot more polished. Um, it became a lot more like pro. <laughs> um, and and maybe like, you know, there was still a lot of artsier things going on, but I feel like, you know, it was all new people um, after I left. It was, you know, a completely different scene. Um, and and the bands that I did hear, hear sounded really good, like quality, like things that you wouldn't expect to like be, you know, DIY, like Hawaii releases. Like they all sounded like they were professionally recorded. And, you know, that was, that was not something that was, ever really an option, um, especially during the catalog period, but then, you know, even, you know, later on when, when I was in hardcore band. Yeah, because I pretty much started going to shows around 2005, 2006. Mm. And I think my first band recorded with Dimitri from Buckshot Shorty. Okay, yeah. By that point, <laughs> Kylo already had his own like professional studio. Right. And like he was recording a bunch of local bands at that point, which might attribute to why the sound. I mean, I don't know where Makua Valley recorded, but yeah, there was just 
definitely, uh, I guess, more places for bands to record, a little more clean. Yeah. Like, oh, also EMS um, in Pearl City, uh, I think Garrett in Potluck. Oh, right. Was that the place that used to be a rehearsal studio and then it became like just a full-blown recording studio, but behind the Burger King? Impulsive. Yes, it's behind the Burger King. There was like three rooms you could jam in. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it used to be called Exclusive Recording Studio or something like that. Exclusive, exclusive Music Studio. Yeah, that's what I think. And then when I started hanging out with uh, my friend, because I lived in Iaea, yeah. and I had a couple of older, like they were like three years older than me, so they were like ex-superheroes, and uh, oh, Whiskey Shift was another band. that they were. Mm. It was like a crew of people that I became friends with, and we all just hung out at EMS. And they mm. told me about Potluck and like other bands like that. And I met Garrett and uh, yeah. So, so that was like another spot where bands could record and rehearse. And I feel like, yeah. I don't know if there was that many opportunities back then for bands to just have like a nice place to. There really wasn't. Uh, the catalog of demo was recorded in some dude's house in Kailua, like somewhere up in like the hills. Like it was, he had a, like a small shack in the mountains. Um, and I, I'm not exaggerating this at all. Like it was, it was like a one room shack that was his recording studio somewhere in like the mountains. And he had like a, I want to say he had a four track reel to reel. And he probably had a 16 channel mixer. So it was going, the so 16 channel is going to four tracks. Um, and I think that we recorded it live and then overdub the vocals but nothing else that's the way to um, do it that's yeah still the so way it to sounds do like it com- it sounds like complete garbage honestly but like you know <laughs> it, it was all we had at the time i still like i'll listen to those uh old old recording it sounds super fuzzy and like almost a little blown out but yeah everything is audible you can hear the bass and hear the drums you can hear the guitar you can hear the bass. It yeah just has the overlying fuzz yeah and then i think like when grapefruit and them started recording i think they may have recorded at their church or something because they i if i might be wrong but i think they all met at church and they all played in their church's band and and that's how like they started playing together but i think that when when they and their friend band started recording i think they all may have done it at their church and they'll correct me if i'm wrong i'm sure of it um but I feel I feel like that's what it was. Um, so their recordings were a little bit better than you know ours. <laughs> <laughs> well, they got that. Yeah, church will hook it up. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so you run, you're like a, a interview show with like old school like right. Yeah. Local so bands we, and stuff. we I did my first episode with Willie from BYK next week or last week rather. This week I'm interviewing uh, Mindy and Lonnie from Sorry and Mike's is Dead. Um, and we're gonna talk about like women in the punk scene during the 90s. Oh um, yeah. How, how that you know was going and what the vibe was uh, for them. Um, and then next week I'm, I'm interviewing Raul from um, Double Dog uh, and got a few other things lined up, but I, I wanted to do it basically because I didn't know you were doing this podcast and <laughs> i didn't know somebody was doing something similar but the idea is like really just to archive like you know uh, the thoughts and the stories 
from the scene back then with like the people that were like you know important or yeah. you know trailbla- trailblazers um and 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 to keep it casual also like i wanted it to be like just a straight talk story um and you know catch up kind of thing but then also talk about you know what what made the hawaii scene important to them um, yeah i mean that's pretty much my inspiration too is that er- like now i live in dc and mm-hmm. there's just people who still have no idea that hawaii had or has oh, yeah. a punk scene right. and like i honestly like i started in mid like 2005 so i missed so like decades worth of music yeah yeah and uh so yeah I but then you got to see all this stuff that i missed so yeah <laughs> so it's a good crossover between the right. two generations of uh the scene but that's that's another part of it too like i think with the series without knowing too much about you know what happened in hawaii and the punk scene for the last 15 years or so like i would like to like meet those people and like talk to those people and talk to them about how the scene changed and you know we'll probably get you on our show at some point and and, <laughs> and we can talk about the late 2000s i think there's something about living in in such a small place and such a tight-knit community that like inspires that kind of like you know just do it because nobody else is going to do it if you don't you know exactly. like that diy I mean, uh, spirit is very right alive. Yeah, I mean, what choice do you have, really, you know? Like, yep. that's the way I felt about it at the time. It was like, you know, if we want to see these bands, we're going to have to bring them here because they're not going to come on their own and nobody else is going to bring them. So, yeah, you know, that's awesome. Thank you <laughs> and Les for fucking doing that. And I, I honestly, like, because I knew the queers and scared to talk and those bands had come before, mm. it must have left some mark in my brain. It had to have been a DIY thing to make that happen. Someone must have put in a bunch of work, raise money, and do it the exact but same we had, way. We had fun the entire time, and that was kind of the yeah. point of it for us, you know? Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about all this. All right, no problem. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for asking me. I don't Hell get to yeah. talk about old stuff too often with oh. real people, human beings <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that I can see in person. It's but, fascinating, yeah. man. I really genuinely love hearing all these old stories because some of these venues I uh, I was lucky to catch before they closed down or yeah. I had friends just driving by like, oh, that place had this going on. Oh, right. that place used to be this thing. Now getting to talk to people like you or Dave or my buddy, right? Like people who were around before me, it's cool to have like a little image painted of what actually happened in these spots. Yeah. And we can glorify it because you'll never know. Like, yeah. Never know. Oh, yeah. Like if it, if it was just shitty and like we're fully making it up. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> all my memories of half the places I'm talking about loving were like, it sucked at the time. <laughs> Whereas like I didn't care. But now looking back, I'm like, man, I wish that was still around. Right. The kids right. have no idea. They, oh, they missed out. That's right. We get to be old and nostalgic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, man, it was great meeting you, and I appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, man, not a problem. Thanks for doing it a billion times over. Um, and, yeah, uh, stay safe. Stay healthy. You too, man. Stay safe out there. And that was the interview with Kevin Jones. Check out his series on Facebook called Punk on a Rock. Learn more about the old scene. 
Uh, I'm going to close out the show with one of his, a song from one of his bands, A Young Poisoner's Handbook. The song is called uh, It's 8 O'Clock. Uh, take care of yourselves. Go out there and fuck shit up, baby. <laughs> They call me Dr. Love. Get me a ride. Get me a ride. Get me a ride. Get me a ride.